today, Ezekiel chapter 15, and all the way through to the end of chapter 16. So something a bit different today, and the way I'm going to do this. So I've called this the fruitless vine and God's covenant love for Israel. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this powerful and potent, but also very revealing and humbling message that we're going to read this morning from you given through Ezekiel. And I pray that we'll have soft hearts, open hearts to receive what you're saying to us through the prophet Ezekiel and through your word. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's do a memory verse. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Fantastic. Now, today, two chapters, chapter 15. It's only a very short one. It's only eight verses. It's the parable of the fruitless vine. That's my title for that. And the second is chapter 16, and God's faithfulness and compassion towards Israel despite persistent unfaithfulness. So that'll be the second half. So the parable of the fruitless vine. So God tries to communicate to his people by telling stories. And so the first story is about a vine that doesn't bear any fruit and doesn't have any value. In Isaiah chapter 5, this is a quote from John Corson. In Isaiah chapter 5, Israel is likened to a vine that brought forth wild grapes. In Hosea 10, she's likened to an empty vine. Here in chapter 15, the Lord likens her to a worthless vine. So, the vine is like a national emblem of Israel. And as you can see, she hasn't been really fruitful in her past. But she will be fruitful in the future. That's a promise. And there has been times when there has been fruit on the vine, but at the time that we're looking at in Ezekiel's day, there isn't any good fruit. Now, the vine metaphor is a really good metaphor or picture because it shows us that in and of ourselves, we have no value and can do no useful work. Because we're, as Jesus says, we are the vine and he is the branches in John 15. So, very similar. God compared Israel to a vine and he compared the church to a vine. So we can directly relate what we're going to learn today about Israel to us. Just like the branches can only produce fruit when they are connected to the vine, so we can only produce fruit, like the fruit of the Spirit, love, etc., when we are connected to and in fellowship with Jesus. And you can read John 15 for that. So the whole point of this parable is that we exist for one purpose only, to glorify God by bearing much fruit for him. And the parable finishes by giving us the reason that we become unfruitful, and we talked about this last week, and that is persistent unfaithfulness. So let's read the chapter, chapter 15, 1 to 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood, the vine branch which is among the trees of the forest? Is wood taken from it to make any object, or can man? Make a peg from it to hang any vessel on. 
Indeed, it is thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it, and its middle is burned. Is it useful for any work? Obviously not. Indeed, when it was whole, no object could be made from it. How much less will it be useful for any work when the fire has devoured it and it is burned? Therefore thus says the Lord God, Like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will set my face against them. They will go out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate because they have persisted in unfaithfulness, says the Lord. So, common theme, persistent unfaithfulness. So we'll take verses 1 to 3. The wood of the grapevine is useless. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood? The vine branch, which is among the trees of the forest, is wood taken from it to make any object, or can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on? So, what's the first thing you think about when you think of a grapevine? Grapes, yeah. The fruit, the fruit of the vine. You know, no one thinks about, I wonder how good the wood of the vine is. It's a bit silly, isn't it? And so this is the whole point of this parable. It's silly to be talking about how valuable the wood of a vine is because it doesn't have any value. So, you know, when you don't talk about something, it's actually very loud. The silence is deafening, as they say. There's no talk about fruit. And that's the whole point. There's no mention of fruit because Israel as a nation has ceased from bearing good fruit because of their persistent unfaithfulness. So God is saying, all right, if there's no fruit, is there any value in this nation? For us, if we're not bearing fruit, is there any value in our lives? So God here is comparing the value or usefulness of the wood of the vine to the wood of other trees. So the first question God asked is, what can you make with the fruit of the vine? In verse 3 it says, is wood taken from it to make any object? Well, the wood from a dead tree can be used for making lots of things. Furniture, tools, building a house, whatever you want. Instruments, guitars, whatever. However, the wood of the vine is useless for any of these tasks. And a quote from Feinberg, Because the vine is crooked, it cannot be used for building. Because it burns so rapidly, it is of little value for fuel. Because it is soft, it cannot be employed where anything needs to hang on it. Another quote from Meyer, Savorless salt is good for nothing. Fruitless vines are utterly useless. And his important bit, professors of Christ who bear no fruit are worse than useless. They cumber or use up the ground. Let us abide in Christ that he may bear fruit through us. That's from Meyer. Another quote from Wearsby. Ezekiel's contribution to the vineyard story is to point out the worthlessness of the vine if it doesn't bear fruit. If a tree becomes useless, you can at least cut it down and make something useful out of the wood. But what can you make out of the wood of a vine? Now, in verse 3, it talks about a peg. And in the Old Testament, it developed the meaning of something that could be relied upon. So, a quote from Taylor. It developed the meaning of someone who could be relied upon. And the references are Isaiah 20.23, Zechariah 10.4, and Ezra 9.8. And Israel was neither useful nor dependable. 
So the whole thing about being a peg, something you can hang something on, is application here about being faithful. So just as God is faithful and we trust and rely on his faithfulness, so God is looking for faithful people who will be available to follow and obey when God calls us to ministry. So in practice, this is going to look different for each of us. We have a different calling, different ministry, different roles in the church. But whatever God calls us to do, we need to be dependable. We need to be faithful. And there's a couple of attitudes that we need to have. Firstly, have the attitude of Isaiah. He was willing to leave everything else behind. And we see that in Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the Lord saying, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? Meaning the Trinity. I said, Here I am, send me. That's what we should be saying when God calls. Here I am, send me. Now, what's the attitude that Paul had? Well, he was willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. 1 Timothy 1, 8-9a from the NLT, it says, So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord, and don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news, the gospel. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. So we want to be a peg, something that God can hang a responsibility on and we can be useful for him. Not about our own stuff, our own wants, our own desires, focusing on what our sinful nature is wanting, but focusing on what God wants. And in verses 4 and 5, the wood of the grapevine is burned. This represents discipline or judgment. Ezekiel 15, 4 and 5, instead, it is thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it, and its middle is burned. Is it useful for any work? Well, no. Indeed, when it was whole, no object could be made from it. How much less will it be useful for any work when the fire has devoured it and it is burned? So in verse 4 it says, It is thrown into the fire for fuel. So what do you do with wood that can't be used to make anything? Burn it. So when it was whole, in verse 5, no object could be made from it, how much less will it be useful for any work when the fire has devoured it and it is burned? So the illustration here that God is giving is that the wood or the vine has been partially burned. If it was useless before it was burned, how much more useless is the partially burnt wood of the vine? And a couple of quotes here. God, the divine carpenter, has not been able to make anything out of the vine nation. Now that it has been partly charred by the fires of judgment, it is even more useless and must be burnt up. That was by Wright, another one by Volta and Hopp. Ezekiel takes a traditional figure connoting the messianic character of Israel as a repository of God's favour and turns it against itself in almost cynical fashion as a symbol of discarded worthlessness. Now, just to explain that, Israel, they think, well, we're divine. We're indestructible because we're God's people. God's never going to do anything bad to us. We can do what we want because we're divine. And God turns us around and calls them useless. You're useless because you're not faithful. 
and you will be dealt with. You'll lose your privilege. As we're going to find out, as we already know, Jerusalem will soon be destroyed and the temple. Another quote from Clark, A vine would never be cultivated for the sake of its wood. It is really worthless, but as it bears fruit. It's the only purpose, right? What is Israel? Good for nothing, but as God influenced them to bring forth fruit to his glory. But now they have ceased to be fruitful, they are good for nothing, but like a withered branch of the vine to be burnt. So the whole thing here is if we're not fruitful, if we're not abiding in Christ, putting him first, and the Spirit is working through us and bearing the fruit of the Spirit, then our life is useless. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? And in verses 6 to 8, God identifies the persistently unfaithful Jerusalem as a useless vine. So he's told this story and now he says, hey, it's you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will set my face against them. They will go out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate because they have persisted in unfaithfulness, says the Lord. So in verse 6, Like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So basically, after explaining why a fruitless vine is useless and only for burning, God now rebukes his people in Jerusalem, telling them that they are the fruitless vine and therefore worthless and useless. Now, I will set my face against them. So these are God's people, and yet he's setting his face against them. So when we sin against God, we grieve him and invite his discipline. Instead of receiving God's divine approval and blessing as we obey him, we receive his divine disapproval and discipline as we rebel against him. Remember, he is our father, yeah? We're talking about the people that belong to him here. Our sin has separated us from God, Isaiah 59 two, so our fellowship with God is broken. And verse 7, They should go out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. So it's a picture, and the people back then would have understood this, it's a picture of Judah and Jerusalem having been already invaded by the Babylonians twice before. And so God compares that to the vine being partially burnt. So basically, they'd lost a lot of the people, they'd lost a lot of their defences, They'd lost a lot of their riches. If they thought they had anything good before, well, they don't have much now. If they're useless before when they were strong, they're even more useless now when they're weak, physically weak. And one of the things that we can learn from this is that God's judgment or discipline is incremental. It gets worse and worse until we finally respond. So God will strip us of more and more of the things we love until we turn our hearts back to him. And I heard testimony of one guy and he kept on, I think it was drinking, and he didn't stop drinking and turn his heart to God until he ran over by a train because he was drunk and ran in front of a train. But he was grateful that God disciplined him. He lost an arm and a leg, got literally run over. But, you know, he survived. And now he's a believer and he's quite happy he got run over by a train because it woke him up, you know. So... God's discipline is, you know, God will do whatever it takes to bring us back to him. I hope we can respond before we need to get run over by a train. <laughs> so does this have to happen? 
Does the discipline need to keep on going? Well, no. But the people of Jerusalem thought they had survived. They thought they'd gotten away with their sin. You know, the Babylonians have come twice and we survived. We got through it. If they come again, we'll get through it again. And they have this pride and they're just not listening to God. So they refuse to repent. So what recourse does God have now? About to burn them again, but a bit harder this time. It's the destruction, the total destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Because they failed to heed God's clear warnings of coming judgment, and their hearts became even harder, therefore God's discipline became stronger or more intense. And again, this is true for us today. Better to respond to God's mild discipline and and not continue and have to respond to his stern discipline. Verse 7, Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So, what's the purpose of prophecy? To demonstrate that God is in control, that he is sovereign over all the comings and goings of the nations. So when Jerusalem was finally destroyed, they would know that God had indeed predicted it and God is in control. In verse 8 it says, Thus I will make the land desolate. And in chapter 14, verse 3, we read that God was going to judge the land. And so basically this means that he is going to depopulate the land. He's going to take all the people away, all the Israelites away from their homeland, put them into captivity. And why, verse 8, because they have persisted in unfaithfulness. So this judgment is not coming upon them because of a single sin, but rather continuous sin, persistent sin. So Judah stubbornly refusing to repent of their sin, continuing to love their sin more than God. And Alexander's got a good quote here. He says, The reason for this fiery judgment was once more made clear. Judah had been unfaithful to the Lord and his covenant. They had failed to be a blessing to the world. What is the church called to be? Light to the world? Yeah. We are called to be a light to the world, so the world can look to us and see Christ. They failed to be a blessing to the world. So when we're doing what we want instead of what God wants, we're not being a light to the world. We're useless. Our mission in this world is to be ambassadors for Christ, yeah? If we're not being an ambassador, that's what God called us to be, then we're not following God's calling for our lives. It's really quite simple. So there's another reason, and it's not in this passage, but it's in Deuteronomy 32 verse 32. But there's another reason that God must judge or discipline persistent unfaithfulness. And that is that if we're not bearing good fruit, we're bearing bad fruit or evil fruit. And the bad fruit is the fruit of our sinful nature. And you can read you know, Galatians 5, 19-21 and Mark 7, 20-23. And in Mark, Jesus says, you know, Out of the heart come adulteries and fornication and you know, lies. And, and Galatians has got all kinds of things covetousness, gossip, and all those kind of sinful things, they all come from our sinful nature. So if we're following our sinful nature, those things will naturally come out of us. But if we're living our lives being led by the Spirit, we'll produce the fruit of the Spirit, and we'll be fulfilling God's plan for our lives, which is for Him to live through us. So the application, and a lot of people have this, when they read these passages, they go, "Wow." You know, is that it for Israel? God's going to destroy them? And so the application here I've called, is God through with Israel? Is God through with me? 
So, as we read this, it may seem that if a Christian persists in sin, then they will be destroyed. Or if I persist in sin, then I will be destroyed. I will burn the fires of hell for eternity. I will lose my salvation. But as we look at this in the big context of the whole book of Ezekiel and the whole Bible, it's not the case. The fires of God's judgment or discipline are described here as not to destroy, but rather to cleanse, build up, and strengthen us. And you can see Hebrews 12, 10 to 13. Remember, this is God's discipline on his people. So Israel here as a nation was burned or disciplined, but not destroyed. The covenant, the unconditional promises given to Abraham, Moses, and David will continue. God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Now, how do we know this is true? Well, what happened 70 years after the first captivity? Israel's back on the land. The temple's starting to be rebuilt. And then finally, the Jerusalem, the walls are rebuilt. Without, and they come back without idolatry. God has told them that when you come back, you won't be worshipping idols. Guess what? They came back and they weren't worshipping idols. He said, when you come back, I'll cleanse you from your idol worship. He did. That's the purpose of the judgment, his discipline. It wasn't to destroy, it was to cleanse. So one thing to remember here is that throughout the book of Ezekiel and the other prophets, there's always a message of hope and restoration. God always remembers mercy in judgment. And Habakkuk 3.2 says that. Remember mercy in judgment. So the same is true with God's dealings with his children under the new covenant. Yes, we're going to be burned or disciplined. They're burned as in the context of this um, parable here. Or disciplined if we sin. But only because God loves us and doesn't want to see us continue in that sin and end up being destroyed by it. And what would happen to Israel if God didn't intervene? You know, Would have destroyed themselves. So, what did we learn last week? God does nothing without a good cause or purpose, and that purpose is to conform us into the image of Christ. Just like he's working with Israel to bring them back to him. Now, another final application here, fruitfulness and abiding in Christ. In John 15, Jesus gives an important message linking faithfulness, discipleship, obedience, abiding in God's love, fruitfulness, joy, and glorifying God. So, I was going to go into that, and I thought, you know what, I don't need to. I've already taught it, so you guys can look it up on the podcast or the website and listen to that. I encourage you to do that, because Jesus does a good job of going through that, and I want to keep going through Ezekiel. So I've decided not to delve into this whole thing of fruitfulness and abiding in Christ. It's an important message, um, so I, again, I encourage you to listen to the message on John 15, 1-15, or 1-18. Now, we move on to Ezekiel, chapter 16. Now, I'm not going to teach this like I have been most of the other chapters, like verse by verse and breaking everything down. I'm going to do like a survey. So I'm not going to read the whole thing and then break it down bit by bit. I'm just going to read a little bit and explain it, read a little bit and explain it, and only the main points. And the purpose is, I want to get the big picture. We can get bogged down lots of details in this, but I want to get the big picture. And at the end, you'll see why. It's really cool. It's a, a beautiful story, but very sad. And David Guzik calls this the harlot wife of Yahweh, and I've called it 
God's faithfulness and compassion towards Israel despite persistent unfaithfulness. So it's a sad but beautiful metaphoric retelling of the history of Israel. And we learn two main things. God's covenant or unconditional love for his people and his grace towards them. So we learn about his grace and his unconditional promises. And secondly, we learn about Israel's ungrateful and unfaithful response to God's love and goodness lavished on them. And we can learn a lesson from them. So the application here, like a summary really, this is a powerful message to us personally. We too had humble or sinful beginnings and have also undeservedly received abundant blessings from God. Yet, just like the Israelites, we so easily and so often forget and take them for granted. Instead of using what God gives us to bring glory to Him, we use His blessings and gifts for our own benefit. As we read through chapter 16, recognize that we have the same sinful nature that the Israelites have, which is why we are prone to respond to God's loving kindness and grace in the same evil way they did and still are. The good thing for them, that will change when Jesus comes back and they will be his chosen people and they will be righteous and fulfill their ultimate destiny. So, Ezekiel 16, two, the purpose of the parable. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, calls Jerusalem to know her abominations. So that's the purpose. Jerusalem here represents the entire nation of Israel. So not just the southern kingdom now, but the entire nation of Israel for most of this parable. And it continues this theme that we've been going through for several weeks now of God showing the nation their sinfulness and why they were deserving of judgment. So this is just another way of saying the same thing. Verse 3, a humble beginning. It says in verse 3, And say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. So what do these names mean? The Canaan, Amorite and Hittite? Well, this is from Feinberg. Amorite and Hittite were general names for the people of Canaan who occupied the land before Abraham. Being the most powerful of the nations in Canaan, they represented them all. So basically, your ancestry is wicked, just like the Amorites and the Canaanites, people who lived in the land before Israel went there. And in the Bible, the land of Canaan is basically a byword for moral decadence and moral decay. So these nations were known to be extremely wicked. And what did God do in the days of Joshua? Because of the wickedness? Wiped them out. He said, kill everyone. There was that wicked. So that's the context. When the Israelites came into the land, God gave them warning 400 years ago and they didn't repent. It's a long time to wait, isn't it? 400 years? A lot of mercy. So God is describing the early days of the nation of Israel as being wicked and as evil as in pagan nations that once lived in the land of Canaan. So this is not a good way to start out. But guess what? We start out the same way. We are born with a sinful nature. So we can apply this to ourselves. We are born with a sinful nature. We start out with, metaphorically speaking, our mother being a Hittite and our father being an Amorite. And verses 4 and 5, I've called this an unloved and unwanted child. As for your nativity, 
like when you were born. On the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And a quote from Block here. Cutting the cord, washing, rubbing down with salt and clothing the newborn were also customary legal acts of legitimation. Oh, this child is mine. In the neglect and abandonment of the infant in the open field, the parent legally relinquished all rights and responsibilities for the child. So that's what it meant. That's the explanation of what it means. So basically, all the other nations hated Israel. And there was no one to look after her. Israel as a nation was like an abandoned child left for dead in an open field. Without God, she had no hope and no future. She's going to die. Like a baby left abandoned is going to die as well. Well, do we have any hope apart from Christ? What if God decided not to rescue us? We'd be in the same spot, wouldn't we? No hope. But, this is where the story starts to get good. The parable starts to give us some hope. Ezekiel 16, I've titled this section, God as the Heavenly Father. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and become very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. So this little girl grows up into a young woman. Where there was no hope for this dying and unwanted child, what did God do? He comes along and he becomes their father. He takes on himself the responsibility of raising this wicked orphan child as his very own. So under God's loving care, the young child matures and grows up to become a beautiful young woman. And this shows God's grace. So a lot of what we're talking about today is grace. And at the end, we're going to see grace highlighted magnificently. So this shows God's grace toward Israel and us. And we can read this in Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8. This helps us to understand what grace is. The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. Isn't that cool? Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you, and he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. So what's the reason that God chose Israel and was faithful to them to keep his promises to them? Did they deserve it? Did they do anything to earn it? They couldn't. They didn't. It was simply that the Lord loves you and he's keeping his promise to you. Now, another quote from Block to help explain the Hebrew innuendo here. With the passing of the age of innocence and the arrival of sexual maturity, nakedness assumes moral overtones. Whereas the earlier nakedness had made the young baby vulnerable to the elements and marauding animals, now she stands exposed to dangers of a different sort. So basically I've just summarised that saying, the young woman now needs a husband to look after her. So verse 8, what does God do? When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was a time of love. 
So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Now, do you remember in the story with Ruth and Boaz, in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, we hear this phrase again, I will spread my wing over you. It's symbolic of a husband taking his wife under his protection. And so here, God takes Israel to be his wife. So as you go through the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as the wife of Yahweh, or the wife of Jehovah. So what does that mean, practically? Well, she's protected by God. She belongs to God. She's his. And to cover your nakedness refers to God's provision for her. So as the wife of Yahweh, Israel found both protection and provision. 9 to 14, what does God do with his new wife, so to speak? Well, God blesses his people, the people of Israel, with many gifts, and he does the same for us, but they're different. We learned about that last week. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you the sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists, a chain on your neck, and I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. So where did this beauty come from? It's from God, God's splendor, which I gave to you, he says. So what did God give Israel? Only the best. He didn't hold back anything good from them. So what does God give us? Everything that is good for us, only what's best for us, yeah? He doesn't hold back anything good from us. Now, where did Satan cause Eve to start to doubt? Yeah, did God really say that? You know, if you eat of this fruit, then you will be wise, like implying that God is holding something back from them. If they keep following God, then you're going to miss out on something. Well, guess what? They're not missing out on anything. So that's the lie. God will not hold back anything good from us that is good for us. So they got everything. This is a physical picture. They got the tastiest foods, the costliest clothing, the finest jewelry. He also made them beautiful and caused them to be honored among the nations because of the splendor and majesty which God bestowed or conferred upon them. And a good example of this is the early days of Solomon's reign. You know, David had defeated all the nations around. And then Solomon was reigning, and his kingdom was just majestic. He built the temple, he built his palace, and silver was like dirt, and gold was abundant as anything. It was an amazing kingdom until Solomon started to follow the same pattern that we're going to read here. Now, under the new covenant, the church also receives blessings, but we receive greater blessings. They're greater in the sense that they're spiritual. Spiritual is better than physical. And you can read that in Ephesians 1 and look on last week's notes. The conditional and unconditional promises that God gives us, the church. So, Ezekiel 16 verses 15 to 21. 
I've titled this, Israel Rejects God Like an Unfaithful Wife Rejects Her Husband. So God has done all this for her, and look how she responds. But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. You took some of your garments and adorned multicolored higher places for yourself and played the harlot on them, worshipped other gods. Such things should not happen nor be. Basically, it's unthinkable that you would do that. You have also taken your beautiful jewellery from my gold and my silver. Whose gold and silver is it? It's God's, isn't it, yeah? Everything we have is a gift from God which I had given you and made for yourself male images and play the harlot with them. And, you know, basically pornography and sexual immorality. This is the same stuff as what's going on in today's society. You took your embroidered garments and covered them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also, my food. Can you see how many times the word my is in here? Again and again and again. Maybe you could at home just circle them all. I think God's trying to make a point when he keeps repeating the same thing, yeah? And my food which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil and honey, which I fed you, you set it before them as sweet incense, and so it was, says the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you bore to me. So when we bear sons and daughters, who are they born to? God. And these you sacrificed to them to be devoured the idols, and the other people. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered up them by causing them to pass through the fire? This is a reference to Moloch worship. Worship the idol Moloch where they would heat this statue up and the baby would on the hot statue and they'd play drums so they couldn't hear the scream. So What we've looked at now is how Israel sinned against God previously with idol worship, child sacrifice, sexual immorality, pornography, materialism. They took what God had given them and worshipped the gift instead of the giver of the gift. So what does this look like in our lives? You know, we're not putting our kids on the idol of Moloch and burning them. But God gives us good things, right? God gives us families, jobs, careers, musical and sporting talent, money, health, cars, time, whatever. And what do we do? Well, we prioritize these things over God. We make idols out of them. And so we end up worshipping the gift instead of the giver, just like Israel did. We take the things that God gave us, the things that belong to him still. We're just stewards, yeah? We're only stewards. What are we going to do with the things that God has entrusted us with? Jesus speaks about that in the parables in the New Testament, in the Gospels. We need to be good stewards of what God has given us. So. Like the other good things that God has given us, we often use them for our own pleasure and gratification. And think about it, this is incredibly selfish and entirely disrespectful. And God lets us know what he thinks about it. Such things should not happen, nor be. That's what he says. It's wrong. And in verse 9 and 22 And I've titled this, The Cause of Israel's Unfaithfulness, Forgetting God's Blessings and Trusting Themselves. So, verses 9 and 22. But you trusted in your own beauty, and in all, verse 22, your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your blood. 
This is really important. If only we would continue to remember all the good that God has done for us, we would never turn away from him. However, why do we forget so easily? Have you ever thought about that? Why is it so easy to forget all the good and the promises that God has given us? It's because a sinful nature doesn't want to remember. We have a sinful nature that is kind of like scrubbing our brain of anything that's good, you know, and we need to keep filling it back up, you know. The sinful nature is like a sieve, our brain, the sinful nature, and it lets all the good stuff out. We're going to keep pouring it back in if we're going to keep it in there. That's what it's like for me anyway. Because our sinful nature does not want to think upon these things. So, if we could only just continue to remember what God has done for us, it would never turn away from him. But because of our sinful nature, we naturally don't want to remember what God has done for us. And we also naturally want to trust our own wisdom and strength. So we have this sinful tendency to want to be self-reliant or independent of God. So how do we deal with this problem? We must choose beforehand to remember, to make a deliberate and conscious decision to remember both who I was and where I was before God saved me, and secondly, all the good things that God has done for me. Yeah, Because what does the verse say? You did not remember the days of your youth. Where was I before God saved me? I was dead, separated from him, destined for eternity in the lake of fire. But God called me, God drew me to himself, and I was able to choose to follow him. So I need to make a deliberate decision, I've talked about this before, a deliberate decision to remember, to set my mind on these things. What does Colossians say? Chapter 3, verse 1. Set your mind on things above, yeah? We have to set our mind on things above. It's something that we have to make a conscious and deliberate decision to do. It takes effort. We have to keep reminding ourselves. And that's why we need fellowship, because it helps us to remember. So, again, just remember that we will naturally lose what we learn because our sinful nature will not retain it. Okay, We need to keep feeding ourselves. We need to keep reminding ourselves and encouraging ourselves. So, why do we take communion? Well, Luke 22, 19 and 20. This is the ultimate reason. Okay, He took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So again, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is saying, Remember me. Don't forget. Now we go on to verse 23 in Ezekiel 3 to 34. And I've titled this section, Israel persists and increases in unfaithfulness. Then it was so, after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, says the Lord God, that you also built for yourself a shrine and made a high place for yourself in every street. You built your high places at the head of every road and made your beauty to be abhorred. You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry. You also committed harlotry with the Egyptians, and remember, Egypt is a type of the world. And James 4.4 4 says, if we make ourselves a friend of the world, we become an enemy of God. So you also committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very fleshly neighbors. 
This is talking about physically being fleshly. And increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. Verse 27, Behold, therefore, I stretch out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, it means he took away some of their land, and that had already happened, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lured or sexually immoral behavior. You also played the harlot with the Assyrians, because you were insatiable. You couldn't be satisfied. Indeed, you played the harlot with them, and still were not satisfied. Moreover, you multiplied your acts of harlotry as far as the land of the trader, Chaldea, or Babylon, and even then you were not satisfied. So, pause there for a sec. The lesson here, will we ever be satisfied if we persist in sin? (laughs) No. All right. Verse 30, what does it do to us? How degenerate is your heart, says the Lord, seeing you do all these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. These things cause us to become degenerate. They mess us up. You erected your shrine at the head of every road and built your high places in every street. You are not like a harlot because you scorned payment. You are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Remember God took Israel to be his wife? That's the type picture of Israel's relationship to God, his wife. And he says here, you are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men make payment to all harlots, but you make your payments to all your lovers and hire them to come to you from all around for your harlotry. You are the opposite of other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you or paid you to be a harlot. In that you gave payment, but no payment was given to you. Therefore, you are the opposite. So, what's the main thing here? Well, sin never benefits. It only costs. He's comparing a prostitute, and they get some benefit for their business, you know. It's not right. I'm not saying it's right, but, you know, they get paid for it at least, right? With sin, when we give ourselves away, like a prostitute does, We don't get paid, we're actually paying. It's costing us. Sin does not benefit us, it actually costs us. We're the opposite of a harlot when we sin. Verse 27, the daughters of the Philistines who are ashamed of your lured behavior. Now, this is the world being ashamed of the behavior of God's people. Now, we can apply this to today. Do you think the world is ashamed of some of the behavior that goes on in the church? What about all the broken marriages, the financial scandals? There's too many to mention. The church has a bad name in the media. The daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lured behavior. Some of the stuff that the church does is really bad. You know, the priests with all their child abuse and stuff like that. We have done a lot as a church to make the world be ashamed of us. So we need to really work on bearing fruit, good fruit, and demonstrating that we're not like that. God's not like that. Restore the honor of God's name. 
Verse 27, I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you. So this is the consequence that comes from persistent unfaithfulness. Instead of God being for us, he will be against us. And instead of receiving God's blessings, he will be removing them from us. And instead of overcoming our enemies, they will be overcoming us, and we will live a defeated life. Okay, moving on. Again, this is only a survey. I'm not going through every verse. Verses 35 to 42. And I've titled this section, The Sin We Loved Will Destroy Us. Now then, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. Because your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your harlotry with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children which you gave to them, Surely, therefore, I will gather your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them. So who's them? It's all their lovers. It's all the things that they sought pleasure in. All the things, all the sin that they took pleasure in that they thought would bring them satisfaction. What does it say here? I will gather all those things, I will gather them from all around against you and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who break wedlock or shed blood are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy. I will also give you into their hand, and they shall throw down your shrines and break down your high places. They shall also strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewelry, and leave you naked and bare. So God here is talking about the natural consequences of sin. They went out to find pleasure in all these things. And God says, I'm going to use those things you sought pleasure in to destroy you. I will also give into their hand those people, those things that they sought pleasure in are going to turn around and destroy them. Verse 40, They shall also bring up an assembly against you like an army, and they shall stone you with stones and thrust you through with their swords. They shall burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. And I will make you cease playing the harlot and you shall no longer hire lovers. So what's the purpose of God's judgment here? It's to cleanse, yeah? I will make you cease playing the harlot and you shall no longer hire lovers. So gone will be the idolatry. And it's true. When they came back into the land, it was gone. Verse 42. So I will lay to rest my fury towards you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. God's anger does not last forever. His discipline will only last until we repent. I will be quiet and be angry no more. Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but agitated me with all these things, surely I will recompense your deeds on your own head. So how does he do it? He turns around the things we want and he says, you want it, you have it. So I will recompense your deeds on your head, on your own head, says the Lord God, and you shall not commit lewdness or sexual immorality or incest in addition to all your abominations. So the abominations is your idol worship and the lewdness was all the other sexual stuff that they were doing. So a little analogy here to help us get this. Sinning is like picking up a snake by the tail. What happens? It's going to come and bite you, yeah? And another analogy I heard, which I thought was quite humorous, is you get a stick of dynamite and light it up. Oh, look, this is beautiful. It's sparkly. Yay. Bang. So 
the worldly things we love are poison to our soul, and surely, but slowly, and sometimes not so slowly, they will kill and destroy us, robbing us of all that is actually of worth in our lives. And those things being our relationship with God and with other people, our reputation, dignity, honor, possessions. And that's what the scriptures mean when they say repeatedly that sin leads to death. So as a Christian, sin still leads to death. Not eternal death, but everything that God wants to give us will be taken away. It will be destroyed. And the opportunities we have to be ambassadors for Christ, we'll miss them. We'll lose our reward. Verse 43, it says in there, Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but agitated me with all these things, surely I will also recompense your deeds on your own head. So, what's the initial fault that caused all this? Well, they didn't remember the goodness and grace that God had poured out on them. Now, what happened in the days of Joshua? They all followed exactly what God said until Joshua and all the elders alive at that time died, and they didn't pass it on to their kids. What does Deuteronomy 6 say? Fathers, teach your children. Fathers, teach your children. You know, in the morning, at lunch, at dinner time. But they didn't. And so they forgot. And what do they do as soon as the last elder died? Straight back into idol worship. So forgetting the good that someone does for us is called being ungrateful. Ungratefulness is like smoke in the nostrils. It stinks and it's very repulsive. So if we get angry when our kids or others are ungrateful for the things we do for them, then how much more will God, who has freely given us all good things to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6.17, get angry with us? He describes his reaction to our ungratefulness as being agitated. And it means, the Hebrew word means to be worked up, enraged, perturbed, angry, irritated, astonished, and to be in anguish. It's just so wrong. This thing of being ungrateful is really wrong. And a little summary statement here. Remembering leads to gratitude, which leads to obedience, which leads to blessing. So God said, you're not remembering. You are forgetting. You did not remember. So if we do remember, we'll go the opposite path. We'll remember, which will cause us to be grateful for what he's done for us, which will lead to us wanting to obey him, which will lead to us being a blessing to God and to those around us as we bear fruit. Now, verses 44 to 59 And here, religious Judah is more wicked than other wicked nations. Remember, Judah at the time, the temple is still standing. They're still going there. They're still seeing the songs, still giving money. They're still offering sacrifices, going through all the motions of being God's people. But every other part of their life was just a wreck. Their hearts were not in it at all. So verse 44 Indeed, everyone who quotes Proverbs will use this proverb against you, like mother, like daughter. You know what that means, don't you? We usually use it in a negative way. You know, if you have a bad example as a mum, and you know, you're just like your mum, you know. It can be used as positive, but in this case, it's a negative. You are your mother's daughter, loathing husband and children. In other words, extremely unfaithful. And you are the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite. And remember, this is a slur. It's a put-down, yeah? And your father an Ammonite. Wicked. 
evil. Now you're, and this is now referring to Judah and Jerusalem, so your elder sister is Samaria, and Samaria represents the northern kingdom of Israel. So your elder sister is Samaria, who dwells with her daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister, who dwells to the south of you, is Sodom and her daughters. So God is now comparing the nation of Judah with the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, and also with Sodom, the people of Sodom. Interesting comparison, right? So Sodom down south and Samaria just up north there. You did not walk in their ways nor act according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all your ways. You didn't do just what they did, you were worse. This is the religious people, this is the people of Judah with the temple. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, this was iniquity of your sister Sodom, like the city of Sodom and those cities in the plain down there before they were destroyed. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty, or proud, and committed abomination before me, those worshipped idols. Therefore I took them away as I saw fit. Remember that when you worship idols, it leads to all this other sexual sin. And you read in Genesis what it was like in Sodom. It's disgusting. But it was worse in Jerusalem. Samaria did not commit half of your sins, but you have multiplied your abominations more than they, and have justified your sisters by all the abominations which you have done, all the idol worship you have done. And verse 52, look at this. You who judge your sisters, remember, northern kingdom of Israel and Sodom, bear your own shame also, because the sins which you committed were more abominable than theirs. They were worse. They, Sodom and northern kingdom of Israel, they are more righteous than you. Yes, be disgraced also and bear your own shame, because you justified your sisters. When I bring back their captives, the captives of Sodom and her daughters, and the captives of Samaria and her daughters, then will also bring back the captives of your captivity among them, that you may bear your own shame and be disgraced by all that you did when you comforted them. When your sister Sodom and her daughters return to the former state and Samaria and her daughters return to their former state, then you and your daughters will return to your former state, for your sister Sodom was not a byword in your mouth in the days of your pride. So, before they were destroyed, they would think of Sodom as being, oh, they're wicked, evil people. And they wouldn't even say the word Sodom because that represents evil. But guess what? They were worse. And before their wickedness was uncovered, before the depths of their depravity was uncovered, they would not even use the word Sodom because, oh, that's bad. Verse 57, before your wickedness was uncovered, it was like the time of reproach of the daughters of Syria and all those around her, and of all the daughters of the Philistines who despise you everywhere. You have paid for your lewdness and your abominations, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, who despise the oath by breaking the covenant. So, the main point here is that 
Shame results when we persist in unfaithfulness, refusing to repent of our sin. You see that in verse 52. If we refuse to repent, God will eventually uncover our wickedness and we will be despised. It's much better to confess and repent and then the shame's gone because we all make mistakes. We know that. But when we don't confess and it gets worse and worse and worse, when it all does come out, you know, we'll be a lot worse off. It's interesting that one of the hallmarks of a backslidden or unrepentant person is they are usually very critical of others. And one characteristic of our sinful nature is that we love to deceive ourselves by justifying our own sin, while at the same time condemning the same or lesser sin in other people. And a good example is David. Nathan comes to him and says, you know, there was a rich man who stole the, the poor man's lamb. He had plenty, but he didn't want to use his own, so he took another one from the only lamb from the poor man. And David said, that man should be killed. That was so wrong. You know, he's got plenty. Let him use one of his own lambs for his guest. And Nathan says, that's you. <laughs> You're the one who stole Bathsheba from Uriah the Hittite. He only had one wife. You've got plenty. Why'd you steal his? So, David is a good example here. And the same thing as Israel. They judge, they think that they're so much better than other people, but actually they're worse. So, again, remember, the people of Judah were still very religious and doing all the things that they used to do, like worship, singing the songs, reading the scripture, and temple offering and sacrifices, but their hearts were so evil. Now, you think, how is this going to finish? How is this going to end? It's amazing what God does here in the last three verses. And this is going to prepare us to take communion. And I've called this once a child of God, always a child of God. Can you imagine getting any worse than Sodom? Can you imagine getting any worse than what God has described in here, in this chapter? What does God say at the end of this? It's incredible. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. So there's two things here, the old and the new. The promises that he gave to Abraham, he's going to keep those promises. They will be his people. And he's going to establish a new covenant. So I just read the scripture. Nevertheless, I remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. So nevertheless, I can't help this, sorry. It's exciting. Despite all this, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to keep my promise with you. You forget me, but I'm not going to forget you. What's that verse saying, Timothy? Though we are unfaithful, he cannot be unfaithful. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older and younger sisters, remember Sodom and the northern kingdom of Israel, for I will give them to you for daughters, but not because of my covenant with you, and I will establish my covenant with you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth any more because of your shame. When I provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord. Isn't that amazing? When I provide an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord. This is why this thing is so powerful. Verse 60, it says, Nevertheless, 
I will remember my covenant or my past promise with you. So Israel may forget God, but God won't forget Israel. And this long message, 63 verses, is the most shocking, gory, and ugly description of anyone's sin in the whole of the Old Testament, as far as I know. It hasn't been nice reading it. But it's here, at the end of this darkness and grossness of sin, that God reaffirms his covenant promise to Israel that they will always be his people. This is grace. God is freely and willingly giving the people what they absolutely don't deserve. Why? As we read before, simply because he loves them. And how awesome is it to serve a God so loving and as gracious as this? Because God remembers and keeps his promise to Israel, no matter how much they sinned, we know that he will keep his promises to us under the new covenant, no matter how much we sin. That's the big picture here. This is grace. Okay. Now, why is this so important? Because if we think, well, I need to have a certain level of righteousness, I need to have a certain minimum level of behavior, you know, things to do, then that's not grace, it's works. We're saved despite being an enemy of God, despite our sin. Now, is this a license to sin? Once I'm a Christian, I can do whatever I want because God's going to forgive me? Just take a really long look at what we've just been reading. There are severe, practical consequences for sin. (laughs) What just happened to the nation of Israel? What's happening to the nation of Israel at this time? They are being disciplined. By what? Their sin. I will cause them, the things, the lovers that you were chasing, to come back on you and destroy you. So, yes, you will be forgiven. Yes, you will still go to heaven because the promise is true. God will not break his promise. But you will ruin your life and you will severely impact the lives of those around you for worse. So, Romans 6 explains this. Paul says, Shall we continue in sin? And what does he say? Certainly not. And then he goes on to describe the practical consequences of sin and the fact that we have a new nature which shouldn't want to sin. So there's two reasons why we shouldn't continue in sin. Grace is not a license to sin. Yes, it's true that once we're Christian, no matter how much we sin, we are still saved. But then here's another thing I haven't written down in here, but if a person continues to sin without repentance and they call themselves a Christian, maybe they were never a Christian to start with. But for those, and I can use my own life as an example, when I went through a series of years where I was struggling with an addiction, I knew in my heart that God would not give up on me. You know, I knew that God would be gracious to me. And no matter how much I struggled with this thing, he would not let go of me. I would still be his child. And so this is where we have to understand grace. Because a lot of people I've talked to, they say, well, I've done all these things. I know I don't want to do them. I know I want to come back to God, but I'm thinking that God can't forgive me anymore. Well, that's just not true. And if you're not saved and you're continuing in sin, and you choose to repent, that's fine too. 
it's never too late to repent and give your life to Christ because he will always accept you because of his grace. And verse 60 and 63, I will in the future right, establish an everlasting covenant with you when I provide you an atonement for all you have done. So grace, grace, and more grace. Not just keep the old promises, but he's going to give them better promises. And this speaks of the new covenant, when the blood of Christ atones for our sin. Remember? Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And some of the other blessings, as we know, we also receive his Holy Spirit in us as proof of our adoption. One of those things that God will not take out of us. Once the Spirit is in us, it's a guarantee until the day we go to be with the Lord. Romans 8, 14-17. And we also have this promise that the Holy Spirit is in us to overcome sin. Romans 8, 12-13. This incredible gift which is given in the face of such heinous sin and persistent unfaithfulness is a great example, a perfect example of Romans 5, 20-21. So, I'm reading this from the NLT. It says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. In the Greek, it literally means superabound. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what I want to just focus on right now as we take communion is God's grace. It's not to be abused because we're going to have the practical consequences of that sin. And we're going to grieve the Holy Spirit who's in us. We're not going to even enjoy the sin because of our new nature. We're going to be, I don't like this. I'm not enjoying this. Even though part of me does, part of me won't. So as we take communion now, just think about who you were before God saved you. Sinner, enemy of God, and God in his grace drew you to himself and made promises to you. He put his Holy Spirit in you and he would keep you in his hands. No, he's not going to let you go. And so no matter When we sin, no matter how much we sin, as a Christian, we can still always go back and ask for forgiveness and we'll still be his child. But again, that warning, if you're sinning and you don't really have any conscience about it and you are just doing the same thing and you don't care, well, it's a pretty good indication that you don't have a new nature. So just be careful. Don't say, oh, I'm okay because God's going to forgive all my sin. Well, if you never actually repented and you don't have your new nature, the Holy Spirit living in you, and you're not grieved by your sin, then that's one of the keys to knowing that you're not saved. So if you are sinning and you are grieving over that sin and knowing that you don't want to do this and really struggling with it, that's actually evidence that you are saved because it's a spirit convicting you of your sin. What did Jesus say about his body? It was broken for you. And his blood, it was shed for you. 
So let's eat and drink together. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son coming down to earth to be born as a man, to live a perfect life, to suffer and die in our place. And Lord, we know, especially from reading what we read today, that we don't deserve anything of what you give us. Lord, help us to be humbled by your grace. Lord, when I think about how I've been so ungrateful in the past, and and I can be even now, Lord, it, it grieves me, it hurts me, it, it makes me ashamed. And Lord, it's really saddening, Lord, the grief it brings to know that I've been so ungrateful and I've just abused your grace, but you've still been so generous and kind. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you are so gracious. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, as it says in the chapter we just read, you will be ashamed. Lord, that shame is not a condemnation. It's just realizing that I've really been an ungrateful sod and I've just continued to do what I want to do despite your patience and your gentleness and your gifts to me. Lord, thank you for who you are and help us when we do sin as a believer that we won't believe the lie of the enemy and say, you've gone too far, God can't forgive you because your grace superabounds. We cannot out-sin your grace. So thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.